Our good friend Adam back in the house. Oh, of such movies as Jack and Jill. And pixels. <laughs> and the golf one. Yes. Water man. Water world. It's me, Adam Sandler from the Water World. How are you today? <sighs> I don't care, because I'm Adam Sandler. And I'm rolling around in Sony and Coca-Cola money. Yes! <laughs> Little Nikki was in another film I was in as well. <laughs> Thanks, Adam. Oh, don't mention it. I'm going away now. Bye. Bye, Adam Sandler. You pillock. Well, wasn't that exciting? What a thrill. We're doing another Happy Madison film because fuck our lives, apparently. And we had the one and the only, the original, the OG Happy Madison in Adam Sandler dropping in to say hello. It's just delightful. What a charmer. I know. I know. And it, it's so nice to have special celebrity guest stars from Hollywood. Ones that so far haven't been proven to be the worst in terms of private lives, when it comes to production, he's one of the worst. But not if you're the Coca-Cola company, because you get a lot of advertising out of his films. Or if you're one of his friends. Or, or if you're David Spade. <laughs> yeah. Or, or uh, uh, oh God, what's it? Rob, uh... Zombie? <laughs> no, that would be better. That would be amazing. Schneider, Schneider. Rob I, I, Schneider. Yeah. I'd rather have... Can we can we recast everything that Rob Schneider has been in and replace him with Rob Zombie? That would be brilliant. I would love that. Uh, and, and, and actually, if we could just replace Rob Schneider in life... Yeah. <laughs> Rob Zombie. Then again, I would, I would like to see Rob Zombie replaced with Rob Schneider just for one album, just to see how it would sound. Something tells me it would sound atrocious, Conrad. It'd be very pro-Trump. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it would be. It would be at least slightly more pro-Trump than an actual Rob Zombie album, which, according to my scientific data, is not all that pro-Trump. No, no, not so much. No. <laughs> Rob Schneider. He's in this film we're talking about today, and he for a yes, bit. Yes, he is. Just a bit. Yeah. Because because he's one of Adam's friends. He's one of the gang. And some of the gang, boy, like, you know, I I guess I didn't realize how much of a gang it really is until, like, this moment. Oh, yeah. They, basically, Adam Sandler's films exist to do two things, which is be commercials for products and give his Saturday Night Live friends something to do. Mm-hmm. But in this, at least in this case, it's not just his Saturday Night Live friends. Uh, we got, uh, uh, what the fuck's his name? Um, Nick, Sh Nick Swartzen? I prefer what the fuck's his name. Yeah, yeah. We, but we get Nick Swartzen, who I generally like Nick Swartzen mm -hmm. when I see him in things. Uh, his show, he had a show called Pretend Time on, uh, I want to say Comedy Central, but it might have been Cartoon Network. I already don't like it based on the name. And it is it, it is some very sort of absurdist out there stuff. Gotcha. Uh, it's not great. It's very American absurdism. Yeah. 
you know, yeah, like I, I think that's all I really have to say about <laughs> that. But it's it's not horrible, and and I I had some decent laughs from it. I love him in Reno Nine One One. He plays Terry, the rollerblading uh, uh, streetwalker, mm-hmm. and he's kind of funny in that. I, I've been meaning to go and check that out. I saw little bits here and there, and it didn't quite grab me. But I feel like if I were to sit down and make a concerted effort, I might have a different read on it. Yeah, it, it is a it's a pretty fun show. Um, it's made more. I think it's more fun now, um, and and if you want to like really get a sense of, of of what they're doing there. There's a great podcast called Running from Cops that you should listen to. That's all about how cops is made and produced, and you know, like what they do. And it's horrifying, of course. Mm. Like, like it's terrible. They're you know ruining the lives of these people that they put on television, uh, and then they talk about the the new iteration of this concept which is i guess uh, i think it's called live pd and they set up in a whole bunch of cities across the country and they'll do like two hours of quote-unquote live interaction with police that's fucked up it's incredibly fucked up because they you know they can't get permission from these people to show their faces no no in the moment and no it's just horrifying it, it's really monstrous what's happening. That should be straight up illegal. I'd, I'd ask the police to look into that, but oh. Right. Yeah. Yeah, but they have, they have contracts with the production company. Yeah. And they get, you know, they get final cut on everything. That's... Uh... Yeah. So, enjoy that. Yeah. What's fun? And then, and then go see Reno 911 and see how much better it would be if these people were all incompetent. Right. You know, as opposed to just evil. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I love that show, and, and Nick Swartzen's good in it. And he wrote this, and he's not a great writer, apparently. No. I mean, there's, uh, there's he has also, uh, he shares writing with the star of the film, Alan, Alan Covert. Yeah, it's good to spread the blame around. Yeah. If you shoulder the burden of guilt on your own, it's a, it's a harder slog. Right? Yeah. When there is only one set of footprints in the sand, I try to write Grandma's Boy on my own. How'd it work out? Not good. <laughs> I needed I needed someone else to add more no jokes in it. <laughs> so yeah, we're talking about Grandma's Boy. This was your punishment. Yeah. Uh, to me for making us watch Blubberella last time. And to be honest, I think I still owe you. Well, it, I... It, I think I, the way I see it, it's kind of proof that I would never do to you the sort of thing <laughs> that you have done to me. To us, let me, let's be fair. I, <laughs> okay. I, I inflicted Blubberella on myself as well. It's just I took you down with me. <laughs> um, but yeah, certainly in comparison, and even on its own a little bit, Grandma's Boy ain't that bad. No. It's not funny. I didn't laugh once. Actually, that's a lie. I was laughing, but only because in my head, as scenes were unfolding, I was rewriting it in my head. Um, For example, in Grandma's Boy, at the culmination of the second act is a house party with the grandmas and a whole bunch of people invited from a strip club and bikers, and there's beer and weed and ha-ha, isn't it funny? The old ladies are also near some beer and weed. Um, and enjoying themselves and then someone a a man has sex with the old lady and that is funny because that is a joke as 
Adam Sandler's production company understands one. Um, but during that scene, the titular grandma, well, she's not really tit- but she sort of is titular. She's in the title. Yeah, I don't think you get her name until like the third act of the film. It's yeah. like the first time someone calls her something other than grandma. But she is grandma. Um, during that party scene, she sits on a t- she sits on a chair and falls asleep, and she looks dead. And I started having a laugh, imagining that she does die, and the third act of the film. Her corpse is in the corner in that chair for the rest of the film. Oh, my God. And the thing is, is they're not ignoring it. But when they walk into a room, like, they will acknowledge she's dead in the corner and will occasionally say things like someone needs to clean that up before they then carry on with the scene. Well, they, they, and, and, you know, they could have they set that joke opportunity up with the you know house cleaning montage where he finds three dead cats under the couch. Yes. So there's already a precedent there. Yeah. Also during this film, uh, the fully titular grandma's boy um, tries to cover up the fact that he is a 35-year-old man who's now living with his grand- grandmother and her two old friends by telling his co-workers that he's with some, you know, hot girls who are into kinky shit and whenever something weird happens to him, like he burns his hands on the, the oven tray and comes to work bandaged up. And they're like, what happened? It's like, oh, the girls did freaky sex things and it was so hot and I did coming all the time. Um, and then at one point, like, the, the, the old ladies are watching TV and he says that he can't use the TV to do work because he's a game tester because they're watching porn. And then I started laughing again because in my head, it should have been that grandma and her two old women really were doing all the things that grandma's boy said they were doing. That they were sex freaks and they did hang around all day in their house watching pornography. Because in my head, that's a way funnier film. Grandma's boy goes to live with grandma and she and her old friends are fucking fuck freaks. And they, there is porn on in these old ladies. And the house is all still like an old lady's house. Doilies and vases and things. Right. But there is hardcore porn on. But just hardcore porn. <laughs> like harsh hardcore porn. Constantly. So I had a lot of fun with this film by remaking Grandma's Boy in my head to actually be funny. By making a funny movie out of it. Yeah. Yes. Because otherwise... It's weird because usually a bad comedy film is unbearable because the joy in an entertaining bad movie is laughing at it. But a bad comedy movie, by definition, isn't funny. So you can't laugh at it. There is a rare type where the, the comedy attempted is so poor that you can laugh at the sheer, utter depressing failure of it. But this wasn't, um, it wasn't that kind of bad comedy film. But it wasn't the other kind either where I'm just cringing and finding... Like Blubberella. Mm-hmm. I'm either offended or I'm cringing at it. It was so toothless. And I think this is an issue with a lot of Happy Madison films in general. Is they sell themselves on being, you know, explicit and out there and extreme. Um, you know, the, the version on Amazon I watched was Grandma's Boy. Unrated! But watching it... Not even by the standards of 2006 when it came out, by the standards of films that were around at that time and before, there's no bite to it. No, no. It's just, there's no 
there are no great culminating gags. There are no jokes. And, well, and, and it's interesting because, like, it is not a joke-heavy film. It's a gag-heavy film. But the gags aren't... They're not good. Yeah, they're not strong. They're not... Yeah. yeah they, they're weak gags. Even gags that they kind of... They, they uh, steal. Yeah, I would say steal is the appropriate term. Uh, because early in the film, there's a, a, a sequence where uh, the grandma's boy is staying at one of his co-workers' houses and he's masturbating to a doll in the bathroom and his co-worker's mother comes into the bathroom somewhat unannounced at the wrong moment and he jizzes all over her. Yeah. But that joke, that gag, that gag is eight years old by this point. Mm -hmm. It was in There's Something About Mary and they at least put the cum in her hair. Right. Because we had this conversation before we recorded. Yeah. Let's talk about the lack of cum in this film. Right? Let's, let's really like get into some in-depth movie film critique and discuss the lack of cum in Grandma's Boy. <laughs> I should never say the sentence, lack of cum in Grandma's Boy, as a sentence ever again. Out of context, that could, uh, that could go a place. Oh. Oh. But yeah, in a post there's something about Mary World... Put the jizz in the film. If you're going to have a cum-going-everywhere joke or gag, have the cum. Because otherwise, he's just turning round with the camera, like, shot from waist up, and he's just thrusting up and down going, oh, say, having to say out loud that he's coming to tell the audience that that's what's going on. If you want that joke to have some bite, if you want that joke to actually have some fucking weight behind it... Cum needs to be splashing all over the other person that he's inadvertently coming on. Oh, yeah. It should be like a, a can of silly string. Yes. In order for the joke, especially in a movie that is billing itself as unrated at that time, as a movie that has on the cover a big warning about all of the, the edgy material in it and the wacky jokes and the, the weed references. Oh, my God, there's weed drugs in this, guys. It's like... It's a, it's a, it's like a child at school trying to convince you they're grown up because they know the word penis, you know? It's it's so infantile, mm-hmm. but it doesn't even commit enough to the infantile jokes for them to be funny. Because if you're going to go gross, if you're going to go edgy humour, if you're going to go X-rated cum jokes and tit jokes and dick jokes... All of which are in this. Yes. They're, all of those are in here. All of them are in here. They're smoothed over. Yes, you've got to go the whole way with it. If you're going to go for gross-out, lewd humour, it has to have a certain level of extremity to it, a certain level of, of over-the-topness. Well, it has to be, you know, boundary-crossing. Yeah, it has to, as you say, at least match or exceed the level of lewd humour in something about Mary. Because that's already been done. And if you're just going to do a weaker version of that, what's the point? There are many ways you can be funny in a film. It doesn't all have to be lewd. No. Nope. But if, you, if you've decided, I'm going to go lewd, then you have, to, you have to measure the extremity of the content with the lewdness you're going for. Otherwise, you just look a bit cowardly. And that's what this film, many times over, feels a little bit craven. Mm-hmm. And certainly boneless. It's it's edgy humor with the bones taken out. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree with that. It's also so very very plotless. Uh, that was another issue I had with it. Is since there are no like wild jokes and gags backing it up, instead I'm left wondering what the point of it all is. 
that you don't worry about that so much if the jokes are coming thick and fast, if there's cum going everywhere. Right. Um, you're distracted. You're distracted. You've got cum in your eyes. Yeah, you've got cum in, you've got too much cum in your eyes to worry about the plot. But since the humour is so boneless, this movie is just a sequence of events. Yeah. Where there are no stakes whatsoever until the final act. And even then... About 10 minutes of that act has stakes and they're resolved really quickly and there's no build-up to them. Yeah, it establishes a character who's supposed to be a villain who doesn't feel particularly villainous. No, he's just a a socially awkward jackass for most of it. Yeah, and, like, we all know that person. That person's everywhere now, but (laughs) what do you do with him? Yeah. And it's, it's so weird because for the most part, until it comes together in that last act, I spend most of the film thinking, how does living with your grandma and being a game tester come together in a film that makes sense? Because there's an entire movie in being a game tester. Oh, God, yes. There's an entire movie in satirising the game industry. But true to form, like a Happy Madison film, they're not really interested in coming to details. No. And getting in deep with the subject matter. Very much like their attempts at gags and jokes. They arrive at the idea of it and then just leave it. Yeah. And, And an example of that is the... The kind of yogi-style CEO. Again, a, a very well-established character trope. Although in 2006, not quite as much. Right. But, you know, this this boss of this game company is introduced on his desk doing yoga poses while a, a woman in the, the, the scene... Um, what's it? Um, oh, I can't remember her name now. Samantha's the character's name. Uh, Samantha. We'll, we'll just go with the character. The, the actress is uh, Linda Cardellini. That's it, yes. Uh, and she's sat there... Kind of obviously waiting to have a meeting and he's doing yoga poses. And I'm watching this thinking, oh, okay, so we're going to have this over-the-top um, namaste kind of guy uh, who satirizes that idea of the, the modern business person who doesn't wear the suits and, and goes all sort of in on that new age stuff. But no, he says namaste once and that's the beginning and end of the joke. The beginning and end of the joke is he's dressed a bit different and we see him do a yoga pose once. Oh, and his office is full of, like, Asian-inspired yeah. decor. And... But there's nothing done with any of it. It's it's all the trappings, the setup of a gag. It's like, I recognise that character. Exactly. That's all we're meant to laugh at. We're just meant to say, that's funny because I've seen... Basically, because I've seen other jokes said about this character. And it's really a shame. This character archetype has been used funnily. It's a shame because I think Kevin Nealon is well cast. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, that's a great character for him. He can do that. I'd say there's a fair bit of good casting in this. Yeah. But none of them are given the the, the in-depth writing needed, or again, the, the bones needed, to do anything with what they've been given mm-hmm. because it's all so surface level. It's such a, a shallow film. Let's set this in a game tester thing and then do nothing but the usual, oh, eternal death killer blood three. Now that's such, an, uh, such a bargain basement low level video game joke. Yeah. Let's just have a bunch of violent words put together and that's a video game title. That doesn't satirise the industry. That doesn't say anything about the industry. That's just something you find in people, in in films and TV shows done by people who don't know anything about games other than they violent. Yeah, and they clearly know very, very little about the process of game development. No, because I've never seen anyone say while playing a test thing, 
without any evidence of seeing it on screen as well, saying, oh, the collision detection on this is excellent. <laughs> it's one of those scenes where you're like, okay, you've just Googled video game terms and have just put it in, haven't you? So it's like, don't don't set your whole workplace comedy element in a, a you know a facility for which you have no knowledge and no interest in researching it. Yeah, it's almost. I mean, it's fantastical the way it's portrayed. Certainly, seeing QA testers with enough free time on their hands is weird. Well, that yeah, they sure do seem to get to goof around a lot at that place. For uh, well, it's no wonder they had to bring in a project manager to get everyone in line and finish it. But it, it is interesting that, you know, their approach to QAing it is, here are five levels, do those. Yes. <laughs> That's what it is. Just finish these levels. And we found all the bugs and we know how to fix them. Yeah. And what they don't include uh, after that is, uh, and we're sure that it won't result in the creation of a whole host of new bugs that we'll yes. have to find and fix. There is such a film in a QA tester job oh yeah there is such a film that could go in hard on things to satirize about the way qa testers are treated about you know crunch of course about um the cynicism in that industry about things like fixing bugs only to cause a thousand more bugs with the fix there is so much if it was done by someone who actually gave a shit i still don't know aside from the fact that they weakly justify grandma playing a vital role in a video game conflict at the end. I still spent most of the film wondering, why is this film about a guy living with his grandma also a film about a guy working in, uh, at a game company? They seem so uh, arbitrary, is the word I'm thinking of. It's, mm. it's an arbitrary melting of two film concepts. Yeah. Because aside from the fact that the grandmas use all the TV all the time, so he can't test the levels that he brings home like all qa testers are allowed to do um, oh yeah that's totally how it works yeah that's the only conflict where those two things really stack up he could be working anywhere for the premise of this film he could have just stayed at the office which is exactly what the game company would have made him do in real life well i don't get any sense that anybody who's in the office does any work at any point that they're there yeah like every scene set in the offices is people goofing around not working yep even the points at which you see alex working he's not working on work for the job he's working on his personal project it's 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 ridiculous. Yeah. But we talk about the casting, and the casting would be pretty good. I mean, here we've got Doris Roberts, who plays Grandma Lily. She is coming into this at the height of her power, mm -hmm. right? Like, she had done Everybody Loves Raymond, which is a huge, huge sitcom here. Yeah. For reasons that still <laughs> boggle my mind. But, you know, she just finished that up the year before, and the next thing she goes and does... Got to get me into some grandma's boy. <laughs> Just like, fuck. Uh, Shirley Jones, who is the the horny uh, elderly roommate Grace. Uh, that's great casting. Uh, and I mean, she's fine in the role. She does a good job. But it's more who she is career wise. Because she's Mrs. Partridge. Right. From the Partridge family. You know, good, clean-cut 70s fun. Yeah. Uh, getting into some dirty, not-so-clean-cut 70s fun <laughs> uh, in this. Delightful. I, I love her. Uh, Nick Swartzen's fine in this. Mm-hmm. 
he's just kind of doing his thing. Jonah Hill, though, that's the one. And this is a film where, like, I didn't realize it was Jonah Hill at first. I thought it was Josh Gad. I, when I first saw him, I was like, is that Jonah Hill? Yeah. And he was Jonah Hill. He was Jonah Hill. I thought it was yeah. Josh Gad, but this was a little early for Josh Gad. That would have been too early, yeah. Yeah. He looked young, didn't he? Boy, Jonah Hill's lost a lot of weight. Yeah. Yeah, he looks good. So, wait a minute. Hang on. That can't be. Mm-hmm. Uh, Todd Holland? Okay. Oh, I'm, see- I'm confusing with Tom Holland. This is Todd Holland. He would have been an embryo. Yeah, this is uh, Todd Holland who is in one of... Uh, he's in many Adam Sandler films. Go figure. He does tend to, yeah, he does tend to self-farm. He's one of the two movers, uh, along with Kevin Nash. Yeah, that was like the first thing, because I sent you a message like, I'm very sadly putting it on now. And then like a minute later, I messaged you with, oh shit, it's Kevin Nash. Yeah, like some fun people in this uh, yeah. for, you know. Some fun, talented people and Rob Schneider. And David Spade. And David Spade. <sighs> mm-hmm. There was a time... In the early 90s, living in Phoenix, where David Spade was on Saturday Night Live, and people cared. Yep. Because he's from Phoenix. (laughs) It's like, oh, (laughs) good for you, David. Local boy makes good. Then we kept watching him. Changed our minds. (laughs) Yep. But fair play to him. For for as long as Adam Sandler's still making films, he's always going to have a reliable income. Well, and he had big sitcoms after that. Like, he he was on news radio, I think, or I don't know. But he had, like, a real sitcom career. He was on one of those films, one of those shows, yeah. Yeah, he he was in, like, two sitcoms that went for five or six years. The man, I I don't get it. Is it just because he's snide and shitty all the time? Is that funny? It gets you ahead in Hollywood. He's not in this, really. I mean, apart from, like, the end of his shtick, the the, the finale of his scene. He does feel like he's there just to be there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know who else is also there just to be there? What's that? The guy who plays Josh. Now, Josh is the roommate to whom uh, Alex has been paying rent, and he hasn't been paying the rent, and this is so the inciting incident that kicks off the whole narrative yeah uh J- jonathan lauren the actor who plays josh has uh 41 acting credits to his name oh good for him uh now i didn't count how many of them are adam sandler films <laughs> most of them it's a lot but then if you look on imdb he also has 30 credits under miscellaneous crew 30 mm. they are all assistant to Adam Sandler, with the exception of one episode of Mr. Show with Bob and David where he was a production associate in 1995. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Starting in 1998, he seems to have been Adam Sandler's personal assistant on every film he's made. Wow. Prolific. Yeah. And Adam sticks him in to most of them somewhere, which, you know, pays to be Adam's friend, I guess. Yeah, I mean, for, for all of his glaring faults... He does do right by his chums, it seems. Yeah. He, 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 he keeps them working, whether we want them to work or not. And, you know, there's like, there's something to be said for that, right? Like, There's a, 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 an element of honor to it. I would like to believe that if I became incredibly wealthy and successful for fuck all, and, uh, you know, I mean, Adam Sandler probably works very hard. Which is in its own right depressing to think about. <laughs> he probably works very hard. We, we we like to make fun of famous people yeah. and call them lazy 
and shit like that. But once you even like reach a level of success that you work, you can work all the time, the amount of other work that comes up piling on as a result of that. There's a kind of juxtaposition between intellectual laziness with a lot of actual labor. Right. Yes. He probably does labor a lot. Like, you're right. He probably does work pretty damn hard while producing some of the most vapid, lazy films in the world. Right. But I would like to think that if I were in that position and it wouldn't humiliate my friends too much to do it, like if I had a bunch of friends who had little to no dignity through this process. Yeah. If you knew a bunch of Spades and Schneiders. Right. I'd like to think that I would look out for them. A rising tide raises all shits. Right. <laughs> Which is true, because shit floats. Yeah. And that is Adam, <laughs> Adam Sandler, is a big, big body of floaty, shitty water. <laughs> Full of sea scum. Adam Sandler, is he's the collection of disused flotation devices <laughs> that are propping up the shit barge. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's dirty sewer water. And Schneider and, <laughs> and Schneider and Spade and Kevin James and all that lot. They're the foam. <laughs> they're, they're the bacteria-riddled foam on top of the sewage water. And that's nice in a way. It is. Heartwarming. Yeah, I for all the shit that we give them. And, and if they stopped today, if Adam Sandler stopped today and never made another movie, I would not be sad about it. Oh, I'd be absolutely fine with it. I'd be like, you know what, Adam? I'll soldier on. Yep. I'll survive. Yeah. Without further Adam Sandler productions. But if he's going to keep doing it, and God, he is. He will. And that's that's the thing. It's like it's one thing when it's your Chris Rocks and your David Spades and all of those people that he's, you know, giving work to. They, they could probably find some work. Yeah. David Spade can go do another shitty stand-up tour. Right. Uh, Rob Schneider has his own incredibly crappy, uh, you know, self-flagellating memoir show called Real Rob, mm-hmm. which is not good. I wanted to I wanted to like it because I want to like Rob Schneider because he's one of those people who I feel has succeeded in Hollywood in spite of being Rob Schneider. Yeah. And it, you kind of want to pull for those people, but he's such a tremendous asshole in public life now. And the show that he made about his life demonstrates, like, it's not, it, it doesn't feel satirical. <laughs> it doesn't feel like he's poking holes in his own persona. <laughs> he just seems like an asshole. Right. Because he is an asshole in real life. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you see him, like, supporting people like Jonathan Lauren, who is his personal assistant. Mm-hmm. And putting him in all these movies. And you can't help but think there is a whole network of other people that you never think about, that we're never exposed to, that he is supporting with his quote-unquote talent. And unlike Uwe Boll, who also puts the same group of people in films, Adam Sandler probably doesn't hold their passports hostage. No, no. Are you kidding? It's, look, it's, very, it's a very, very different experience when Adam Sandler wants to do a movie in Hawaii versus Uwe Boll wanting to shoot a film in Croatia. Yes. And I think that that's a, actually a really big juxtaposition between these two director-producers. Yeah. Because Uwe Boll's strategy is, I am going to secure the investment to make this movie as cheaply as possible and still lose money on it so it can be a write-off for them. And Adam Sandler's 
I have the star power to demand that this production that I am making be paid for by someone else, and we're going to set it in a place where I could take a vacation with my friends. Yeah, two very unique flavors of self-interest. Yeah, there's a big gulf between them, but they're effectively doing the same thing. (laughs) Yeah, the bowl-sandless spectrum. (laughs) We can put all the movie makers who produce cynical shit on this spectrum. Yeah. Someone yeah. do that. I'm too lazy. Who who are they looking out for? Are they looking out for themselves or are they looking out for their friends and in what measure? Yeah, what's the balance there? Mm-hmm. Ah, but so long as Dunkin' Donuts keeps paying him, he's going to keep making films, his old Adam. Yep. Well, and, and this is a pretty early Happy Madison, like, small production. There wasn't too much product placement unless we count the video games. Well, there's there's some, though. There's some. There is. I mean, there always is. But there wasn't. Yeah. it wasn't as extreme as some of his latter films get. No. Well, and they don't call anything out by name. Yeah. You know, the placement is there. You know, you can, you can see your uh, cut-rate uh, ruffles mm-hmm. on, on screen. Kevin Nash enjoying those. Yum, yum. If they're good enough for Kevin Nash, Conrad, they're good enough for me. I'm going to run out and buy some right now. Get you, get you some wavy lays. Get me some all beautiful wavy ruffles. So roughly. <laughs> they got that Kevin Nash seal of approval. This is the whole thing is just very milk toast. Mm-hmm. I, I think at the at the end of the day, yeah. it, it, there's it, it's not offensive. No, in any respect, it'll tr- the cover will try and trick you into thinking it is with its big unrated thing and its big promise of all the edgy stuff inside, but. Even by the standards of today, uh, sorry, even by the standards of the day, it's weak. It seems weird to me that there would be a rated version of this. It seems weird to me that this is a movie that spent any time in a film theater. Yeah, would have done. It's got its own theme song and everything. Grandma's boy! Grandma's boy! I listened to that whole song during the end credits. Oh, did you really? Oh, yeah, they explain. It's one of those ones that explain the plot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I stopped. I was like, all right, let's see if there's an end credit shit. I fast forward. You were right to have done this. I caught on to what it was pretty quickly. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. So, you want to get into it? Jonah's character is sucking on the boobs. Like, it just explains everything that they thought was worth mentioning. Uh, Yes, yes, let's get into it. So we begin with a Galaga-inspired credit sequence, followed by a shot of a trashy house where our hero Alex is playing a boxing game on Xbox and kicking the ever-loving crap out of his roommate Josh. And between rounds, while Alex is distracted loading a bong, Josh starts the match again, having pulled Alex's controller plug out, and in the ensuing chaos, the, the bong is knocked over. It's a big, tragic moment. Yeah. yeah, because of the weeds. Because of the weeds, and because Josh never cleans the bong. Yes, dirty bong. Dirty bong go everywhere. Admittedly, there are few things I can think of that are more just disgusting than being in a room where someone has spilled bong water that you know hasn't been cleaned. Yeah, I mean, weed, weed byproduct anything. Yeah. Get it out of the way. Yeah. Hush in my mellow. You dirty weed runoff. Ugh. Stop it, it's disgusting. All the, all the Resident Evils are cheap on Switch right now. Ooh. I just got an email. Thanks, Nintendo. All of them? Like, e- e- even the new ones? Uh, Zero, Resident Evil, and Resident Evil 4. All the ones that went up recent. Mm. And the Switch, they're all 20 bucks. Ooh, I might have That's to nice. some of that. God. Yeah. Get me some of that. So, 
as all of this is happening, a couple of large men come into the house, whom Alex then finds in his kitchen, packing up his stuff and eating his wavy lays. Mmm, delicious, aren't they? Yeah, there's also a, a, a brand of raisins you can see in the cabinet. Oh, good. I think they're... they're, they're uh, I can't remember what... It's a very distinctive bread. I recognize the box, can't remember the name. So I don't know how effective it actually is. Yeah. They've been sent by Alex's landlord, Yuri. Who plays Yuri? Uh, played by Rob Schneider. Oh, good. Yes, 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 Rob Schneider. Which, you know, of all of the offensive uh, ethnic characters that Rob Schneider has played, this isn't the worst. No, they, it's got that going for it. This isn't the worst Rob Schneider's done. No, it's it's it's. The, I don't know what he's trying to do. Mm-hmm. He's clearly tried to play an ethnic stereotype, but I am unclear which one it is. Yeah, he is so bad at whatever it is he's doing, you can't tell who he's actually trying to offend. And I think that's why it's not offensive. Yeah, I think that's it. It's just who. Who could tell enough to be offended by it? Uh, so it, 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 Alex hasn't paid rent in six months, and it turns out that Josh has been blowing their money at a Filipino rub and tug, and so Yuri is there to evict them. Cool. Weed. Yep. Sex. Wavy lays. It has everything. This has teeth. I mean, we're five minutes in. This is some edge of your seat rampant extreme comedy right now. So Alex goes to Dante, his weed dealer. I like Dante. Actually, of all of the characters in this, he's the one that entertains me. Yeah. Like, all of the scenes that involve Dante, and part of that is that, you know, he, he has these peripheral weird characters that come in, and uh, he's entertaining. I like a dopey guy. I won't, I won't say I liked him in any way, but I will say that the scenes he's in are where if you were to watch the film at a glance, they've got the best chance of communicating quickly that you're watching a comedy film. Yeah. Yeah. The rest of it, you're, if you're just watching it, if you just flick through the channels and you see a scene of Grandma's Boy, you might not know you're watching a comedy. If you see a scene with him in it, with the weed dealer, then it's like, oh, okay, I understand that what I'm watching is designed to be a comedy. And, and Dante is a rather fit, you know, kind of, he's, he's got that Encino man kind of, yeah. you know, thing going on where he seems to have that high forehead and... He genuinely is a character you could imagine being played by Polly Shore. Yeah, I don't know if Polly Shore has the has the build for it as a thing, because I think part of what makes Dante work for me is he has this very surfer dude vibe going on yeah. that I don't think Polly Shore could pull off. That's true. I guess if Polly Shore, because the weed dealer guy, he, he answers the door naked, that's his first scene, isn't it? Yeah, and he's super bronzed. I think that, yeah, I, I agree. But if, if Polly Shore did it, there'd, st- there'd be a different kind of gag attempt in that, but it wouldn't be the same. Yeah. And at some point, maybe we should take a look at Polly Shore, because I'm very <laughs> curious to see if some of his 90s films have held, you know, they hold up, Yeah. right? Um, I was thinking Brendan Fraser, actually, mm. would have been a good Dante. I'm always thinking Brendan Fraser. He would have been a good Dante. But yeah, I there there was a stretch of Polly Shore movies that were hugely successful. Yeah. And I think a couple of them were pretty funny. I've watched... The only one I remember is the the one set on the farm. That's uh, Son-in-Law. Son-in-Law. Yeah. I don't remember finding it all that funny. Yeah, it, I, I didn't remember finding it that funny. But I don't really remember Son-in-Law very well. I remember seeing um, Biodo, which was all right. Um, I've seen Encino Man. Uh, I've seen In the Army Now. Uh, and then for 
whatever reason, I saw Jury Duty. That one I recall specifically being very bad. And I think that's the one that ultimately killed his career. We should do that for spin-off doctors for no sure, for sure. no justifiable reason. Yeah. But then and he had a lull in his career for a while. If the only one you remember is Son in Law though, I might suggest that you watch Polly Shore is Dead. This was his sort of career revival film. Mm-hmm. He plays himself in a career doldrum who uh, gets a vision, uh, has a vision of Sam Kinison, which there's a his, there's a big history there. Um, Polly Shore, if you're not aware, Polly Shore is the son of Mitzi Shore. Mitzi Shore uh, in the stand-up comedy community was widely, widely known because she ran, she owned the comedy store in L.A., uh, which is one of basically two major venues for up-and-coming stand-ups. In, in Los Angeles. So she is she was very, very well-known and successful, and he grew up surrounded by legendary comedy figures of the 70s and 80s. Oh, so he had no excuse. No, not, none whatsoever. Uh, and Sam Kinison was actually his babysitter a couple of times, which, what the fuck was going on <laughs> in the early 80s in Los Angeles? It must have been just so much coke everywhere to allow that to happen. Who the fuck? Fuck gives a child to Sam Kinison. Makes no sense to me. But um, yeah, in, in Polly Shore is dead, he has this vision of Sam Kinison who suggests to him that, well, everyone makes you a legend once you're dead. And so he fakes his own death. Hmm. And it's a weird kind of funny movie about a guy who fakes his own death and does, be, you know, get the kind of popular acclaim he desires and then has to figure out how to come back into public life. It's weird. I don't know if it's still funny, but I liked it when I saw it. It was nice to see Polly Shore take, Shore take the piss out of himself. Yeah. After, you know, having had a successful career on the basis of almost no merit at all. Like, going from being an MTV VJ to a major motion picture star with his own vehicles is weird. Yeah. The weasel should never have worked. And I think it kind of pigeonholed him for a long time but when you think about that when you look at paulie shaw's career the whole trump thing isn't that strange anymore it's just oh okay yeah america always does this this makes sense it'll just decide someone gets to be something yeah especially if they you know had parents who were excruciatingly successful in some arena Mm -hmm. like that's the key to being successful in america that is true is is to have had a successful parent that's it if you're gonna pull yourself up by your bootstraps what you're really doing is pulling your child up by the bootstraps yeah in the end you you if you can be a success you can create a legacy that's successful um not me no thanks not happening back to grandma's boy as uh, Alex and Dante smoke a joint, Dante tells him that he can't stay uh, at his place because it's his place of business. And he's got a guard lion arriving in a couple of days. Yeah. That's a joke. That's a, that's a gag. We never see the lion. We never see the lion. We do see the next animal. We do see the next animal, but by that point, you've traded us down. Yeah. Yeah. Again, in a real film. You'd have seen the lion. In a real comedy film with real gags, you get an excellent lion scene. Yeah. Well, and this is like... Another thing, too, is that it sort of dates the film a little bit because it would be absolutely unacceptable for this film to have been released now or even within the last five years 
where there isn't shaky handheld, you know, like phone camera footage of the lion. Mm. Like that absolutely would have been incorporated into their news broadcast thing. And yeah, when we when we get when we talk about the aftermath of the lion, we don't see in the film later on. Right. Yeah, you're right. Like that, it would it would have been done in a completely different way these days. So Alex buys some weed. Completely under, uninterested in knowing what strain he's getting. Something I can relate to. I just don't know enough. Yeah. They're like, do you want this or do you want this or do you want that? I'm like, I don't know which one. Which one makes me watch the Saw films laughing because I can't believe the Saw films exist? <laughs> Give me that one. Yeah, I have met some. I, have, I, I haven't I have met this weed dealer because I've never dealt with a weed, weed dealer who is this ridiculous. <laughs> You know, I have spent some time in the presence of weed dealers who were unsavory or people I wouldn't want to spend any time with socially. Sure, I get that. Mm -hmm. But I've never met one that was, like, this daft. I've come close, but it's less comedy, ha-ha, I'm getting a lion, and more, this will be funny later when I'm not (laughs) this one. Yeah. Yeah, I. you know, but you, you get these people that... Like, well, people get really into weed. Oh, yeah. Really into it. I don't get that. I'm too busy trying to get the weed into me. Right? Isn't that the goal? That's it. Tell me, is the shit good? Cool. That's it. It really is. Do you want this, this, or this? I don't care. Just give me good one. Is there a strain that's just called good? <laughs> <laughs> like, I can understand. There's some differences between, you know, sativas and indica. Fine. That's about as far into it as I'm willing to go. Like, is this going to make me sleepy? Or is this going to make me see shit? Yeah, I want to know, like, how... Yeah, what What are the results? I don't care about the names or any of that shit. Like I say, I want my can't-believe-saw-is-real <laughs> stuff. So Alex buys some weed and then leaves to attend his cousin's wedding. And at the wedding, Alex is giving video game tips uh, to kids. And again, in the real, like, shallow way of, oh, use your lightning arrows. No, that that's too in-depth for them. Use your magic arrows, I think he says. Oh, do you have the magic arrows? Okay, here's what you do. You've got the magic arrows? Yeah, then when the demon comes out of his cave, shoot the demon with the magic arrows and the demon's head will spin. It's just like stuff that's never been in a video game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But he's so, again, so surface level and obvious. Like there have been arrows that are magic in games. And there, are, I'm sure there have been arrows that are just called magic arrows, but it's like that's the extent of their understanding is the most basic concepts of things that are in games oh well demons are in games and yet when you 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 hear him describe it i can actually sort of imagine that this is a dark souls boss he's describing the way to beat so what you're saying is grandma's boy basically invented dark souls oh no doubt no doubt yeah or the only game they ever played was kingsfield yeah (laughs) maybe 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 happy madison uh, like all of them are huge kingsfield fans (laughs) I will say this, like I've talked about their surface level understanding and their bad descriptions of what games are. However, one bit did almost make me laugh mm. later on. I'll just say it now. When he, the game he talks about him that he's been designing, the grandma's boy, that you're a demon who's been summoned <laughs> to take out a meth lab. Again, my brain did the legwork and imagine that's the entirety of the game. Mm-hmm. That a demon was summoned from hell just to trash some dude's meth lab over a petty squabble. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This is some minor street gang shit. Yeah. So I started making up. Yeah. I started making up, you know, 
the actual jokes about the game in my head, but they, they did give me a good nucleus of the idea of a demon whose only job is to trash a meth lab. But anyway, back to Grandma's boy. <laughs> a, gang, a gang gets into Satanism for the explicit purpose of defeating their rival dealers. Yeah, yeah. Or it's like some some dude got stiffed, like he paid for a full, got half, and was like, right, <laughs> it's time to summon the devil. <laughs> He'll sort this shit out for me. So while he's at the wedding, his grandmother, Lily, offers Alex a place to stay as one of her roommates has recently died. Cool. Uh, he passes, saying that his friend Jeff has offered to put him up. And so on arriving at Jeff's house, Jeff is there in footy pajamas, played by Nick Swartzen. Uh, he still sleeps in a car bed, offers a, a Alex an inflated pool toy, calls it an air mattress for him to sleep on. Yeah. Uh, all right, I'll take it. Oh, and, <laughs> and, and asks him to be quiet so as to not wake up his roommates, who are his parents. Yeah. That's, that's the joke about Jeff, is that Jeff lives with his parents and calls them his roommates. I mean, you couldn't, you literally couldn't have a film like this about video game testers or people who play video games without a lives with parents moment. No, no, you couldn't. They've got to check their boxes. That's the central, like, shameful challenge for the main character when it comes right down to it is the embarrassment of being yeah. 35 and living with your grandparents. And that's another thing about this movie. This movie comes out in 2006, right? Yeah. And at that point, it was a joke. Oh, God, how pathetic are you? 35, still living with your parents? Yeah, you were allowed to earn enough money to live on your own back then. Yeah, 13 years later, all of the people who are, you know, were going to college around this time, taking out student loans mm -hmm. to get into, to get degrees for careers that they can't get jobs in, living with their parents and grandparents now. Yeah. It's not a joke anymore. Nope. It, it, this wouldn't play. It is not a scenario around which humor can exist. Not without the person making those jokes looking so out of touch and privileged. Right. Like this is this is a a film that exists in a very specific pocket of time, like a period of ten years where it was shameful for people to go back living with their parents as opposed to the only option and everyone gets that. Yeah. And it's weird being someone who, you know, grew up in a mindset that, like, I have failed if I go back to live with my parents. Like, utterly failed. And now it's like, well, what else are you going to do? Yeah. I'm ready to move back in with my parents now. <laughs> I'm going to be 40 in a year. Mm-hmm. And I still have, I still harbor that, like, God, how fucking embarrassing would that be to have to go do that? Even though I know it's so fucking normalized now. Well, yeah, it's like we came up in the culture where that was. People younger than us will be like, they will not see why there's shame in that because it is for many people a necessity. Yeah. We've really fucked up as a species. Well, and, and that, frankly... That was never something we should have pursued as a species in the first place, the idea that you, you, you leave home and you don't go back. That is true. That is true. I mean, when I say fucked up, obviously I'm talking about the sheer necessity of it. Right. But it, yeah, you know, that's, that's, that is wrong. But as, you know, in many cultures, and in, uh, it's perfectly normal for multi-generational housing. That is true. You know, that's not weird. It seems to only be a Western capitalist thing. Mm -hmm. so. Well, I mean, you know, if you're renting two houses, you're not renting one house. That's right. 
So, of course, move out from your parents' place. Rent another house for me. And we have a real estate industry that, that needs to, you know, we've got uh, property speculators that got to make money. Yeah. Yeah. By charging outrageous rents, raising the values of, of properties in communities so high that the people who live in those communities can no longer live in them. Yep. Because they got a good bargain when they bought that house in that depressed community. Yeah. What a deal for everyone. On the plus side, eventually people will not be able to afford to live to fill these houses. And then we can strip the wood out and make some guillotines. <laughs> I mean, that's a fanciful joke because there are enough people without houses that they're, they're going to get filled. Are you kidding? We could build guillotines out of the people mm. who don't have housing. Yes. Let, let's, let's repurpose our bones <laughs> to make... I mean, it would look badass. A big guillotine made out of femurs with, with the blade being teeth. And at least we can afford that. Yep. Good luck buying materials. We'll always have bones. Oh, I really want to see a bone guillotine now. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Somebody get on that. Yeah. yeah. Also, I'm definitely going to call my band Bone Guillotine. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, that has a couple of possible, you know, implications. Mmm. You can take that in quite a few directions. Either way, heads will roll. How fucking badass are you if, you, if you're boning a guillotine? Oh. Like, to have that level of confidence and self-assuredness... Watch me. I'm gonna fuck this guillotine, because I don't give a shit. Just call me Robe Spear. <laughs> <laughs> so, unable to sleep, Alex heads to the bathroom to rub what out to a doll that he refers to as Lara. Yeah. Cool. This is... This is the more pathetic thing. I was actually trying to work out, did, does he really mean Laura Croft, uh, Lara Croft here? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he, that's who he means. Because she looks nothing, the doll looks nothing like Lara Croft. No. In but, any way, shape, or form. But this, oh, you want to you go through some exploring? Yeah, let's do some exploring. And again, no real references to the actual game or things that happen in the game. No. It's written by someone who knows Lara Croft exists, and that's the extent of it. Yeah, which is weird, because I think that these people probably do play video games. Uh, it's probably more that they didn't have any sort of deal with Eidos. Could be that, too. That, that's probably... Because there are... Like, there are posters for games fucking everywhere. Oh, yeah. In this. Metal Gear Solid's in there. Snake Eater, in particular. Uh, Blood Rain, I saw one bit of. They got... Uh, uh, all sorts of... They've got the Guilty Gear posters. They play Guilty Gear yeah. at one point in the film. Um, they got the, the PS2 Castlevania game. I think... Was that Lament of Innocence? or Either way, the 3D one. There were, there were two of them. There were Lament of Innocence and Curse of Darkness. There was one of them too. Yep. Well, and they had Gabe and former covers all over the walls of the office. I wonder what that deal was. Mm. Like, yeah. That's wild. These huge printed... Game Informer covers. Crazy. Uh, but anyway, he's, he's jacking off over this doll. Yeah, he's jacking it to Lara. And, and just as he's climaxing, Jeff's mother enters the bathroom and he turns, turns around and comes all over her, or at least that's what we're told happens. It's suggested he comes all over and he says he's doing it because we're not allowed to see it. Why is there no come? This ain't a kid's film. Not even in the unrated version. Not even in the unrated version. It's unrated. By its very definition, you can throw your cum everywhere. Rather than stay the night as offered, he decides to sleep at his office, uh, which is the game development company Brainasium, which, yeah. I, I could see a game company being called that. Yeah, I could see that, particularly around turn of the century. Yeah, it's the most believable part of this. 
He's awakened by Samantha, who is a newly hired project manager brought on to oversee the completion of the company's latest game. Uh, you know what? I'm going to say this is the other thing that I totally buy. Eternal Death Slayer 3. Hey, see, to me, that's just another sort of... Your dad's talking about a game he doesn't know the real name of. What's the name of the uh, game in BoJack Horseman that uh, Todd gets addicted to? Decapathon? Oh, something like that. Decapatron? Oh, no, that's a puppet master puppet. Yeah, I think it's Decapathon. I want to play that game. Someone should make a commercial version of Decapathon. Yeah. Which is just, like, Zoop. Or it's Zoop... uh, Object designs in a Tetris-style game. Uh, So Samantha's looking for her office, and he points her to the empty one. Uh, During actual working hours, Alex slacks off by doodling art for something called Demonic, which uh, I buy that too, actually. That sounds like a... Demonic, yes. In fact, I'm going to Google Demonic video game right now. Well, this was a real game. This was a legitimate game that was in development that got cancelled. And this was like a marketing tie-in opportunity for it. Oh, that I did not know. Yeah, this was an actual game. They gave them, you know, test builds to demonstrate. And, you know, I'm sure that they determined what all the footage was going to be. But yeah, that was an actual thing. Googling demonic video game this far removed does not show you the video game demonic. No. But there is um, a website called crosswalk.com. A devotional faith website. Ten dangerous video games your teen might be playing. So I need to disable my ad blocker on this. I whitelist the websites I use, but, you know, bit of protection. But I will not run it on a site I'm actually interested in. Um, I just want to have a look at what these games are. Grand Theft Auto V, Diablo Three, Wolfenstein The New Order, South Park The Stick of Truth, Assassin's Creed Four, Black Flag, and Mortal Kombat. Watch Dogs, Dead Space 2 and 3... Apparently the first one's fine. Mafia 2 and Naughty Bear. There's a callback. Huh. This was 2014. Even even then, Naughty Bear had been out for a while. Ten dangerous video games for teens. I don't think any of them were for teens. <laughs> Diablo 3, dangerous? As its title may suggest, this game is full of demonic images and monstrosities. Its graphic violent co- content is disturbing and raw. All right, well, I've closed that. Sorry, back to Grandma's boy. Well, so the the game was, uh, according to Unseen64, uh, the site that is just full of all sorts of canceled beta games that uh, it's really a great resource. Uh, their page on it uh, says that the, the game was canned by Majesco, who was publishing it because they were struggling at the time economically. Um, which, you know, it's interesting that that was around the time I think they were putting out some really interesting shit. Like Mm. they were publishing some cool shit in this country. Um, didn't they do Phantom Dust here? Maybe. I feel like that was them. I'm fairly certain they did Blood Rain, which again would explain me seeing it in this film. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so according to NC64, the game was in development for Xbox 360, um, in the Film, it's shown being played on an original Xbox, and that's probably because the 360 hadn't been released yet when they were mm. uh, shooting. That would be my guess. Uh, but it, it, the release was supposed to coincide with the film. Huh. Yeah. 
Uh, and there's a bunch of screenshots you can find of it. So, yeah, this was a real thing that that existed. There's a, a trailer. That would have been an interesting tie-in had the game materialized. Yeah, yeah. There's also an article on, um, let me see, what was it? Uh, Engadget from 2006 uh, that called it the worst marketing ever. <laughs> so, hmm, yeah. So that's demonic. It was a thing. It did exist. It did not release. I bet it wasn't about a demon being summoned to trash a meth lab and that's all it was ever going to do. Uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if the game got cancelled and they just rewrote that. They just, yeah, they just made up all sorts of shit. Yeah. They just didn't give a shit. Because I, I can't help but feel that they would want, you know, or or that is what it was. Or it really was about trashing meth labs as a devil. Yeah. That would have been great. I like when, I like when uh, they're, they're the grandma's playing the game for the first time and she's told to kill a drug dealer and it's a cop yeah that she's killing and i uh, hmm, okay okay uh so jeff comes to alex and suggests that they get lunch and he calls alex douche bigelow huh? <laughs> huh? <laughs> time, Deuce Bigelow was a big enough property that it had produced a sequel. Mmm. I remember that. So, I never saw it, but I remember there being a sequel and I thought, oh. So we're doing this again, huh? Oh, okay, more. In Europe, huh? Oh, okay. where else? <laughs> uh, but lunch is apparently just going to be Alex schooling the younger employees at a olden television game yeah. called Frogbog. There, I, I tell you what, though. The idea of QA testers having a lunch break. Right. What a dream. What a fantasy. What a, what a great fantasy that is. I've played that game that they play. Oh, yeah? Yeah, where you're jumping on lily pads, getting frogs with a, getting uh, bugs with a tongue. Mm-hmm. I used to play a, I used to play it a lot. It was on one of those 101 plug-and-play things. You'd plug into your TV, yeah. and there'd be a whole bunch of knockoff games that were... That shouldn't legally have been on the machine. Right. You get them in a covered market. And yeah, for some reason, the frog one, we played it a lot around mine. I think it's the same thing. I didn't uh, I didn't have an Intellivision growing up. I had cousins who did. Uh, and that wasn't the game we ever played. The Dracula game on Intellivision, I remember being really fun. Uh, but anyway, that's that. In another office, decked out entirely in Asian decor, the CEO, Mr. Cheezel, explains to Samantha that he has some concerns over getting EDS-3 out in time as he wants to free the testers to work on the new project the company's programming prodigy JP is developing. And again, really fantastical, the idea that you would free up the QA tester from their previous job before piling more work on them. You would just tell them to do more work. Yeah, yeah. As this is being... Well, there's no crunch in this. Everyone's able to go home yeah. at the end of the day. Doesn't make sense. The only time a character is in the the place of business on off hours is voluntarily and not to work. What a fantasy. Yep. <sighs> That's the dream right there. Uh, as JP is being discussed, he walks in wearing a Matrix-style coat. I didn't like any scene this guy was in. I respect his commitment to this character. He is insufferable. I don't know how he could do it. When the robot voice comes out... Oh, God. I'm like, how are you not embarrassed? How is everyone making this film not embarrassed by this 
what I can only assume is humor. Were people on the set laughing at this? I, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. I, it's not It's not weird enough to be funny. That's it, yeah. It's, again, like everything else in this film, it takes, the, it takes you up to the brink of the idea of a joke. Right. This guy that I guess thinks he's going to be a robot or has this robot personality in him. The, the closest it got to me almost finding it funny is when he just says as a non sequitur, I'm going to get metal legs. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, that's that's a funny idea. But then that's the only joke they have about it. And then they bring up more than once the metal legs. Yeah, that that comes up real quick. The uh, the CEO suggests that um, JP show Samantha around the office and, and he malades her, which prescient. Yeah. A little before it's time there. Well, uh, we learned that JP never finished school. He went straight into programming because all he's ever known is video games. And yes, he wants to get metal legs. Uh, yeah. It'll be worth it. Yeah. Again, if this were done by people who actually knew a bit about the industry, there is there, there are jokes to be made of the video game auteur. Yeah, you can mind that. The arrogant, self-proclaimed genius, but they only go as far as pointing at the character archetype and saying, look, self-proclaimed genius character. We know that from films. And as the pair pass the break room, they hear the employees going crazy over something. It turns out to be Alex kicking the crap out of some dude in Frogbog. Frogbog, did you happen to catch... Alex's final score at the end of that game? I did not, yeah. yeah. You may be surprised. It's 420. Oh! Ah, like the sex position. Right, right. The old sexy 420. <laughs> JP clearly feels he's above all of this fraternization crap. Uh, but Samantha seems to think it's fun. And after the competition is over, Samantha's introduced to... Uh, Alex and and Jeff and uh, there's a conversation about the color and thickness of Alex's pubic hair. Oh yeah, because they call him Graybush or something. Yeah, super workplace appropriate. Yeah. And after she leaves, uh, JP calls them all turd nuggets, while pretending to be a robot that shoots him with his shoots them with his middle fingers. Yeah, and and that is what is going to happen every time JP is is on screen is he's going to do the whole oh i'm arrogant shtick and then end the scene with funny robot voices and which in the hands of people who are committed to making a funny film could be good i mean without the robot voice i know that guy i know that guy who does the stupid fucking you know animated flipping you off shit yeah you know, yeah we met that guy that's that makes sense, and no one likes that guy. But once again, they don't they don't commit and follow through with it. It's just, I guess it's funny if he does a robot voice without any real reason to, mm-hmm. and they leave it at that. Unable to find a place to stay, Alex tells Jeff he's going to go shack up with this hot chick he's known forever and her two roommates. It is, of course, his grandma Lily's house, where she makes him an enormous meal of leftovers and introduces him to her roommates. B, who is selecting from a tackle box of pharmaceuticals. I like B, but I think that's just because we never get any opportunity for her to do much. Mm. But every time she's there, she's just kind of, oh, okay, kind of like you. You're kind of sweet as an old woman who's just not connected to reality. Um, but again, they didn't do anything with her. She could have been actually something. Yeah. It's just the presentation of a character with the expectation that we will just find that funny on its own. Yeah. Uh, and then Grace, 
who offers to set Alex up with her grandson. Oh, because she thinks this guy... She thinks he's gay. That's that's a joke. That's that's also humor for the film to enjoy. That's humor right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alex is then set up with dead Sophie's room, in which she died on the floor next to the bed. And, and that is... I recognize joke construction going on there. Mm-hmm. Uh, did she tell me she didn't die in the bed? Oh, no, of course not. She died on the floor right here. Yeah, that's joke construction. It's, I mean, possibly the first joke of the film in terms of an actual established joke. In the middle of the night, he wakes up to creaking sounds and the voice of Sophie complaining about how she died on the floor and nobody helped her. But it's just his grandma Lily having a goof. What? Now, this frustrates me because when this happened, I, again, didn't laugh, but thought to myself, okay, if this whole film is the old women, like, going out of their way to fuck with him. Yeah. That's a funny fucking film. That's a that's a premise. I go and live with my doddering grandma. I think she's, you know, just some harmless doddery lady. And they just fuck with the dude for the whole film. That's a that's a movie. This has the this had the opportunity to turn into this like dark psychological torment thing. Yeah. And even if you want to still keep it funny, you know, we can have scenes where he walks into the kitchen and she's face down on the floor mm-hmm. pretending that she died and lets him panic for it about it for like an hour before she gets up. Like, there are ways you could take that. Like You want to do a callback to the Dante answering the door naked joke? Have him come downstairs and all three women are just nude, wandering around. Like, it's not weird. Yeah, and then when he leaves the room, horrified, but when he comes back, they've all got their clothes on again and they act right. as if they were never naked. Yeah. Yeah. I would watch that film. I would watch Grandma's Boy Redux done properly. Forget all the game tester shit. It's just 90 minutes of three old women screwing with this guy's mind. (laughs) Uh, He's awakened at 6 a.m. by a clock, which, okay, that kind of clock, shouldn't it make a ridiculous amount of noise every hour? Why is it only at 6 a.m. it's waking him up? I've never seen a big standing alarm clock like that. Yeah, that's that's odd. Uh, That's followed by Lily inviting him down for breakfast. Unless, again... Again, in our version, in Grandma's Boy Redux... Oh, God, they've retrofitted it to be an alarm clock specifically. Uh, yeah, oh. either that or they set the chime... They come in and they just set the chime off and run away at random intervals. We have to write this movie. We've got to do it. Like, There's so much potential here. Uh, after he has breakfast with them, uh, he's about to go back to bed, but they instead convince him to do numerous chores in the three and a half hours he has before work, which... Cool. Okay, so wait a minute. He has a game testing job where he gets to go home at like five or six o'clock and he doesn't have to be at the office till 10 a.m.? Yep, because in in this movie's understanding of what it must be like to work at a game company, well, they make games. They've got to be doing nothing but fun over there and getting up, you know, to go to work at noon or whatever because they didn't actually bother to find out what it's like to work at a game company. They simply just decided... Oh, they make games. Games are entertainment. Therefore, working at a game company must be entertaining. Right. Mind you, I say they didn't research it. Maybe they did. And maybe companies like Microsoft Game Studio and Majesco and whoever else was working with them on this film was like, it's fun and you don't need to know anything else. 
and your audience doesn't need to know anything else. And they better not fucking know anything else. It's fun. This film's conception of the game industry reminds me very much of an ad for a private technical school that has a game design course. Mm. You know, that, you know, oh, we're going to get you into the exciting world of video games. And, you know, they show these, hey, can you punch up the graphics on level four? Yeah. You know, that kind of shit. That's what this is. Uh so there's a montage uh, where he does household chores. Um, B licks house paint off of a brush. That's a funny thing that she does. Yep. Uh, he finds the corpses of cats under a couch. Many funny things in this montage. And again, in our in Grandma's Boy Redux, there is always a dead cat under the couch. No matter how many times he removes one, another cat finds its way under that couch, and it's dead. There's dead cats everywhere. Yep. Yep. Dead cats everywhere, hardcore porn on the TV, definitely at breakfast. It's the first thing he sees every time he comes downstairs. <laughs> Some hardcore porn. Fuck, this is a good movie that we're making. It's such a good film. Adam Sandler, can we have some money to make this film? Right? We're your friend. No. <laughs> oh, okay, Adam. I'm sorry. I just wanted to make a film for once. It would be nice for a minute. At work, Alex falls asleep farting during a meeting. (laughs) 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 Thank you. Where Samantha's handing out the assignments to the sex-deprived testers who are all willing to do anything she wants because she's a pretty girl. Yep. Glad we went there. Yep. I mean, to be honest, I think that's just what it's like on the set of a Happy Madison film. (sighs) You know what it's... Yeah. The thing... Again, uh, a fantasy where a woman gets that position and is respected. Yeah. Because this is respect relative to the actual game industry. Yep. (laughs) (sighs) I mean, she's been allowed into a management position, which for the game industry, even today, is pretty rare from what I've been fucking hearing. Yeah, not not that common. And, And God forbid a woman does wind up in that position... And, you know, has to have webcomics made of her Mm. doing things. Like, fuck this world. Uh, When asked by Jeff about being asleep, Alex attributes his exhaustion to having spent the night with three women. Uh, And JP approaches Samantha following the meeting and says he'd like to to buy her a black cobra to wear on her neck. Cool. Back home, uh, Alex shows Lily the video game he's been working on in his spare time, Demonic. Uh, which, as we pointed out, is about a demon from hell being raised to destroy a meth lab. And he invites Lily to try it out. And I like this scene a lot. This is the scene that I think most closely resembles reality in terms of video games. Because he gives her the controller and then has to explain to her what all the buttons do. Yeah. I think we forget this. Those of us who have been sort of raised on video games. And, you know, you you hand a kid something technological, they take to it immediately. They'll just figure it out. Yeah. And, you know, when we started playing games, games had a button. Controllers had a button. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, or two. Maybe as many as four. How many buttons are there on a modern game controller? Like, uh, you got your four shoulder buttons... Your four face buttons, so that's eight. At least 11. Your directional pad's another four. Yeah. Uh, uh, each of the thumbsticks, so now we're up to 14. Start and select. Yeah, 16. And your now your home button, so that's 17. Your home button or your touch your touchpad on a PS4 one. Yeah. Yeah. 16. You have to explain. Fucking hell. Can't, I can't remember 16 goddamn things. No. 
and it and it's evident by how I play games now. Like age is catching up with me in terms of the complexity of these things because if I've put a game down for like a month and try to come back to it, I mean, I might as well just fucking start all over because my skill level. I get that a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I've forgotten what everything does. I need that tutorial to remind me how everything works. I, I have gained a whole new respect for games that use tooltips throughout to remind you of the mechanics. Warner Brothers does... The, you, you say a lot of fucking shit about Warner Brothers published games being crap. But damn, do they get this right. They recognize that their open world games are too big and have too much shit going on in them for you to remember all of the shit in it. I've been playing uh, Shadow of War. Or Shadow of Mordor. Yeah, Shadow of Mordor. The, the better one. Yeah, the good one. The good one. I, I, I've had it for years. Never got around to playing it. That was the first thing I observed about it. Was that it was so considerate of my inability to remember its bullshit. Yeah, it does keep you updated if you forget any of the yeah, yeah any of the mechanics. Yeah. If you've been doing a bunch of attacks without execu- performing an execution move, it's like, hey, by the way, you can do this. It's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I can. That's a move. Cool. Thank you, video game. Uh, so, yeah, I like, I like this sequence um, where he's trying to explain it because that is a challenge I, I have faced in the past and I expect I may have to deal with myself in the future as these things continue to become more complex. I mean, can they get more complex than they are now? We always wonder that and there's always the answer is always yes. Yeah, yeah I suppose you're whenever right. you ask, Whenever you wonder if something can be more of a thing, it can always be more of a thing. I just... I think that that's a, a very solid reason why the Wii was so successful. Yeah, I mean, it, it was... I mean, I always said this about why it took off where a lot of other kind of things like VR do not, is you can watch someone play Wii Tennis and immediately understand what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And that's why it was so... Why it took off so well, because you see someone use it, and you're like, oh, I, alre- I can all automatically see how this works. There might be a button here or two there to press while you do it, but... Once the game shows you to do that, but yeah. But it's literally a button or two, right? Once you're shown how to do it, you instantly know what you're doing because, yeah, button or two. The, the Wii Remote has four buttons in a... Well, six buttons in a D-pad. A, B, plus, minus... Oh, uh, seven. Yeah. A, B, plus, minus, home, trigger, and the D-pad. And there's a reason why the trigger and one button was was bigger than the other stuff because that... For many of it, it's what you needed. Right. At worst, you add a nunchuck with another two buttons and an analog. Yep. Anybody can pick up a Wii and use it, which is why everybody bought one. Mm-hmm. And then Nintendo went back to making complicated shit. Well, the Wii U was a disaster for that because it already was something you could see and not know exactly what it was. Yep. Is that just is, is the new thing just a controller for the original Wii or what am I doing with this? versus, oh, someone swinging a white little stick around. I can do that. It's kind of surprising that the Switch has been the success that it has after the Wii U, because the Switch really doesn't seem like that much of a leap. No, I think think it was successful just in terms of being, you know, just a good console that sold well. Not the cultural phenomenon that the Wii was, but... Oh, well, no. No, certainly not. But I think it's just the fact that the Switch is a very good system. But the Switch is really just, when it comes down to it, it's just a minor refinement of the Wii U with a little more power under the hood. Mm, Maybe that's all the Wii U needed. Yeah, maybe. Was just to be done better. Maybe to just not be uh, essentially the 32X of the Wii. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
But then again, I mean, their handheld division has always done really well. So you combine the people that want a new home console with the people that want a new handheld Nintendo console. You've merged the you've merged your market. Yeah, There's probably a, a good contributing factor to its success. I mean, as evidenced by the fact that they've gone ahead and done a, uh, uh, produced a Switch Lite. Yes. No. Yes. That is literally just the handheld. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, so anyway, back to... All right, yeah, Grandma's Boy. Grandma's Boy, right. Um, at work the next day... Oh, wait, no, I've, I've skipped ahead. He uh, invites Lily to try a game. She gets really into it to the point where he can't take it away from her, so he just decides to go to Dante's and buy some wheat. And there he meets a Zimbabwean, I want to say, witch doctor? I don't know. Is that offensive? I, I don't know. No comment. He's supplying Dante with a guard lion because, according to Dante, nobody fucks with a lion. Fair. No. That's fair. Uh, And Dante supplies him with an illegal cable box because there's no cable at Grandma's house and a new bog. Returning home, he raids the fridge and reheats leftovers in the oven and gets stoned and seriously burns himself removing the hot tray from the oven without gloves. I want to be like, oh, God, what a stupid fucking idiot. But I did this, like, a week or two ago. (laughs) I put something in the oven to reheat and thought, ah, this can't possibly be so hot by now that I'm going to hurt myself. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to eventually not have fingerprints, which has its advantages, I suppose. If I'm going to, you know, have to start, like, wearing a black bandana over my face and standing up to fascists... Probably want to get rid of all of those identifying features. Yeah. God damn it. <laughs> no, you know what? No, I've decided I don't care anymore. You know why that is? Because science that? says we're done by 2050. By 2050, climate change will be so bad that the only thing we'll be able to do is uh, among the lower classes is kill each other for resources while the rich get to live in palaces somewhere. Yeah. Uh, so I've stopped worrying. It's nice to have a deadline. <laughs> you know? It's good to know when it's going to end. At work the next day, he explains his injuries <laughs> to his co-workers. This, this podcast has gotten so dark in various places. It really has. It really has. It, you wouldn't think it, but no. there's so little in the film. That is true. And we've somehow managed an hour and a half of this already. When it doesn't, it doesn't expose any of the darkness. It's left it to us. Yes. For some reason, it's become our job, Adam. I'm going to blame Sandler for this. For no good reason. Yeah, he had, the only thing he did is, is own the production company that made it. Yeah, fuck you, Adam Santa. How dare you? How dare you own things? Uh, so he claims his uh, hand injuries uh, were caused by his roommates tying him up for an orgy, which kind of doesn't go over well with Samantha when she hears it, but mostly just because it's irresponsible when he's got all this work to do. Yeah. This is actually where it almost touches on truth in the truth in TV. Yeah. Truth of truth about the game industry. Oh, you're injured. How fucking how dare you do this to me when we've got work to be done? And you're uh, you're a group of men telling me a woman uh, about a you know sexual thing in a workplace that's totally inappropriate. But I'm not gonna go talk to HR about it uh, for reasons. Very realistic. You're right, this podcast is getting really dark. Really dark. Really dark. Uh, She calls him into his office to be disappointed at him. 
then he tries to turn it around by being, and I'm going to use air quotes here, charming, mm. and deserving, observing that she's, and I'm going to use air quotes again here, hot, um, and claiming that she wants to go out with him. All very workplace appropriate. Very sackable offenses. Yes. Yeah. Again, in a in an industry where such things would be taken seriously. Right, right, right. As they should, but unfortunately... It's also complicated by the power dynamic in this situation. Yeah. Like, who is this person that is, like, not disgusted by this behavior? The kind of person that that masturbates to a doll while saying, do you want to go exploring with me, Lara Croft? Oh, I meant her. Oh. <laughs> I meant her. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she's supposed to be the character that, you know, got her head on her shoulders in all of this mess. But they kind of, like with most like women written into these fucking Happy Madison films. She finds it cute. She exists to either find things cute or to be combative against the things, as and when the scene demands. Mm-hmm. There's no consistency to the character. Yeah, yeah. She's there to either be combative and have her hard exterior broken down so that the charming man can be charming with her. Or she's already there. And then they'll just, these characters just flip between those states as the scene needs. Uh, leaving her office, he sees JP standing against the wall in an apparent attempt to be invisible. This is the JP gag I like in this movie. That's just so weird that he's like wearing his black trench coat and he's got the collar pulled up to obscure his face and he's pinned against the wall in a pose. You know, one arm up, one arm down, yeah. pretending to be invisible. And then questioning how it is that he could see him after he walks away. That, I like that gag. Mm-hmm. Would love to find a way to work it into our better movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll just steal that. We'll steal that for Grandma's Boy Redux. Getting home, he finds that the women, Alex, finds that the women are completely absorbed by the illicit cable he's brought in. And as such are dominating the television on which he planned to work. Uh, he gives them Antiques Roadshow to watch, and that's a huge mistake. And the next morning, he finds that Lily has taken his bong, cleaned it, and is using it as a vase. I have to give credit where credit's due. The little flower. The little flower poke, uh, poked into the bottom. Into the stem hole, yeah. That was a nice little touch. Yep, that's cute. And and, and it's kind of cute, the grandma not understanding what the bong is and turning it. That's kind of cute as an idea. She's just being helpful. At Brainasium, one of the testers challenges Jeff to dance, dance, revolution. In our film, she knows damn well what it is. <laughs> of course she does. In our version, she knows damn well what all of his paraphernalia is and consistently misuses it to fuck with him. Oh, God, I just had this horrible idea of, it, of a bong being converted into a fleshlight. Why did my brain do that? Why did my brain do that? But it could serve dual purpose, right? Like... Like, you don't even have to take the fleshlight bit out. <laughs> and, and then you're really just adding to your coolant. Got it, yep. Oh my god, what have I done? Oh, no brain. No brain. Bad brain. You gotta live with that. I know. Uh... You put that negative energy out into the world. <laughs> it's gonna, gonna come back on you thrice fold. So Jeff humiliates the tester that challenges him to Dance Dance Revolution. That's a gag. Mm-hmm. He pretends he doesn't know what the game is and is all impressed, and then he does, he plays Dropout, which at the time was like a legendarily difficult Dance Dance Revolution song. Cool. Yeah. Another testers visits JP's office. Uh, his office is, of course, uh, to, to suit the character, ridiculous. Uh, it's white and 
Spartan, but has these, you know, has binary printed on his doors, and he has a, effectively a throne with three huge monitors suspended from the ceiling. It's just... Again, with more ostentatiousness to it. Yeah. Like if there was a genuine full-on throne room in there with him holding court, that would be amazing. But it is, again, just the suggestion of... Well, and I think that they're trying to make him... Throughout this, I think they're trying to play into this Matrix thing. Because later we see his uh, apartment... And it's just white walls. Yeah. In this huge, it's like it's like an empty, not loft because the ceilings aren't high enough, but just a big empty room with no dividing walls that are just plain white to the point that they glow. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, they're they're playing into that matrixy thing. Anyway, this this tester comes in. But again, mm-hmm. again, just to hammer home this theme of them not doing enough with anything. That's it. All the Matrix stuff is totally surface level, has nothing to do with his robot obsession. Uh, to the point where they have to, like... And, and, and they have to point out that it's the Matrix in 2006? Yeah, yeah. Like, at, at one of the characters has to explicitly refer to his Matrix stuff. Yeah. Why? We got it. Because they worry it's too subtle for them. It's 2006. The Matrix Revolution just came out a couple of years ago. Yeah. Nobody's forgotten the Matrix. It's a cultural phenomenon, for God's sake. Uh, so this tester comes and suggests that they palette swap one of the creatures to distinguish it from another. Uh, now, they don't use the term palette swap because that would have been too technical. In fact, they, they, they suggest they render it in a different color. Yep. Which is not... Yeah. Mm, all right. Someone told them that the word render is used yeah. in games. But he's, uh... This tester is belittled and told to leave. And after he does, JP talks to himself using his robot and normal voices as if they represented two different personalities. Uh, And the robot thinks that the tester had a good idea. So he goes to Samantha and raises the issue, taking credit for the solution at the same time. This is supposed to demonstrate, you know, this is foreshadowing as to who JP really is. Surprise. He then asks her out, gets shot down, and does robot noises as he walks out again. Every time. Back with the testers, Alex is asleep under his desk when the front desk pages him with a delivery. Turns out it's Lily with B and Grace dropping off a lunch for him. So Samantha leads them back, and the testers find out the truth of Alex's living arrangement. Though not without a few double entendres. Oh yeah, because they think at first that these are the Major League fuck freaks. Right, and they're riding him real hard. Oh yeah, because she's like, oh... I like that toy you showed me, and later we can play with it together. She's talking about the video game, but they are obviously thinking, you know, big bag of dildos, mm-hmm. which it should have been. In our version, it will be a big bag of dildos. And the old ladies know full well that by turning up and talking about this at the workplace, they're embarrassing him, but they're going to act oblivious. I think from the perspective of comedy writing, this is the best scene in the movie. Yes, I would agree with that, 100%. Yeah. Like they, uh, they do get some jokes in here, and there's a, a scenario that would play really well as, like, a sketch yeah. somewhere. A little bit of innuendo. Mm-hmm. I almost cracked a smile at the toy line. Yeah. Again, no laughter, but almost it almost got a smirk out of me. And then I started laughing because of things I was coming up with in my head that were better. Right, right, of course. Yeah, that's when you laugh. Yes. When you start having your own ideas inspired by Grandma's Boy. Yep. 
Once home, Alex tells the ladies they should get a good night's sleep as he's bought them tickets to Antiques Roadshow. If I ever were to make a movie, and I don't think I ever will, it would have text at the beginning that says, inspired by the events of Grandma's Boy. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He has bought them these tickets so they'll go to bed early so he can catch up on his work. Uh, They also catch a news report about a rare African lion captured in a residential neighborhood in which Dante is interviewed. Okay, so we're resolving that plot thread. Thank God they didn't leave that dangling. Yeah, we didn't see a lion. No, did not see a lion. And that's the biggest thing is like, you know, one offhanded reference to getting a lion. I'll accept no lion payoff. There were two separate scenes before this in which the lion was built up. If you introduce a lion in Act 1, in Act 2, that lion has to go off. Chekhov's lion. Chekhov's lion. Everyone knows it. Everyone knows it. So the team is now back on track, having found all the bugs in the game and knows how to fix them. And as I said, you know, nothing could possibly go wrong after that point. Hell no. Yeah, you certainly don't always introduce one new bug with every bug you fix. No. Never happens. All you do is you do the levels... Render the elf a different colour, and then you fixed all the bugs. Yep, yep, that's it. Just do the levels. <laughs> to celebrate, uh, Mr. Cheezle instructs Samantha to take the team out to dinner. Uh, oh, also, he had a dream about flying and then flying into the ocean, swimming like a dolphin, and that means good things are coming. Mm. Cool. Really glad we got that scene. Why isn't he doing supremely weird shit? That's what you expect from the character. You don't just talk about a dream. Wow. You are you you are on the floor being a dolphin. Right. Yeah. The the cl- he he does sort of get a little physical with it. Like he sort of lays his head on the table and does this kind of flopping motion with his upper body to you know it, it, indicative of how a dolphin swims. But he should have just gone all out. You know, on the table. On the floor. A hose dribbling water on you. Yeah. Yeah, it needed more. At no point does this film go full or even half ham. As Samantha is preparing to leave for the restaurant, JP stops by her office to once again try to attract her with his ability to get Buffy the Vampire Slayer DVDs early. This was a thing still. Yeah. And again, to give the film moderate credit... When she said that she didn't know that the, the Buffy had come out on DVD already, JP said with this air of cool swagger, I know a guy. And I was like, okay. Yeah. All right. And that, that, I can see that being funny. Yeah. I can see that being funny. Not a joke that works at all these days, of course. You couldn't, we couldn't do that one in our version. No. Actually, we could. That would just make it funny if we did that exact scene. Oh, that he just got the Buffy the Vampire Slayer DVDs. Yeah, and he's using that to impress people. In 2019, that's a funny joke. The restaurant is a new agey vegan place selected by Mr. Cheezle. That does not appeal to any of the testers. No, you can't even get drinks there. And after repeatedly insulting their waiter, uh, who's played by David Spade, they leave to get burgers instead. Uh, This is... I've seen a lot of bad David Spade performances. This is not one of them. It's like the Rob Schneider thing. It's I've seen way worse. Yeah, I've seen a lot worse. I think it helps that uh, both of them combined share maybe a minute of screen time. Yeah, and he's kind of he's smarmy without being smug, which is smug is usually the level at which David Spade operates. Yeah, and he's not smug. He's kind. He's friendly. He he's somewhat sensitive. 
And and then at the end, when, you know, they're all making fun of him and leaving, and Samantha says, I'm sorry, he says, you were sweet. I like that line. I like that bit of the... Yeah. That's cute. Uh, didn't hate it. Meanwhile, Lily has made tea using Alex's weed, thinking it was something that Sophie left behind. And after dinner, the testers stop by the house so that Jeff could use the bathroom and find the elderly women stoned out of their gourds watching Spanish-language television. And after figuring out that they drank all this pot, Samantha and Jeff encourage him to call Dante to get some more. Dante shows up with a bunch of ne'er-do-wells from a place called the Crazy Beaver. Yep. Party ensues. As the night progresses, Samantha and Alex get closer. You know what? Yes. Yes. Oh, okay. Mm, We're going to come back to that. Samantha and Alex get closer, and they prank call JP, who misses the call. Uh, and we get to see his residence at this time and and him struggling with the, the development of his game that just not seemed to be working out. Uh, and, oh, Grace seduces Jeff with tales of her jerking off Charlie Chaplin and banging Abbott and Costello. And Jonah Hill, suck, Jonah, Jonah Hill, Jonah Hill <laughs> suckles on breasts until dawn. He does. The breasts are exposed for our pleasure. They are. They are. I bet this was cut down in the rated version. I bet that this was the part that was too hot for audiences. That's it. The moment she, the moment the breasts are exposed for our pleasure, I got instantly angry about the lack of cum again. Right. Because I see the boobs and I'm like, right, there we are. Full on, unapologetic, proud, wonderful boobs for Jonah Hill to have fun with. Motorboating. Effectively motorboating. And I couldn't see cum go everywhere. Jonah Hill got his boob. Where's my cum? Where's the justice in that? It just doesn't seem right. Ah. Just doesn't seem right. So, oh, oh, uh, in the morning, Alex wakes up to find the place has been entirely cleaned. Despite being completely wrecked. That's a good gag. It's a good gag. Not played up enough. Like every gag in this movie. Mm-hmm. Like he should be legitimately shocked. Yep. Horrified. And again, the grandmothers, and they've now roped Samantha in on this too, mm-hmm. act as if a party never happened. Yeah. that's No one was stoned. No no bikers were here. No karaoke got sung. I've forgotten about the karaoke. Samantha does a incredibly bad rendition of Push It by Salt and Pepper. Lots of hip thrusting and ass waggling, which I think was supposed to be the point. Yeah. Yeah. And then she falls over because of comedy. She plays a solid drunk. Yeah. I'll give her that. It was the lurching to the microphone. Mm-hmm. The, the, the act of how difficult it was to move. She gets that really well done. Yeah, there's some great physical performance out of her here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the place is cleaned and Lily is showing baby pictures of Alex to Samantha. And uh, Alex drives Samantha back to her hotel and they make out when he has to return to her door for his parking claim ticket. Sometime later, JP hears the voice message that was left during the party. And this is what I wanted to get back to. Because apart from Jeff kind of a little bit mocking his robot shit, this is a very chill prank call. Like, they invite him to come out and hang out with them. Yeah. They're nice to him. Apart from Jeff, like, doing robot voices. And he becomes enraged by this. And I, okay... And even then, to be fair, if I dealt with robot noises every single fucking day of my life... I'd mock that shit too! I'd say it's fair game. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think he has some level... Well, it's demonstrated later that he has some self-awareness about this. 
he knows he's fucking weird. And they invited him to hang out. I cannot stress this enough. They're very nice to him. This is one of those things that they needed to play up. They needed to justify him being this angry uh, that he seeks revenge. But uh, anyway, at work the following Monday, as Jeff is regaling the rest of the company with tales of Grace's sexual history, JP confronts him and becomes further upset when he learns that Alex is having lunch with Samantha. (sighs) That night, JP shows up at Lily's house to talk to Alex, crying about the phone message and how nobody likes him. You know, because if people don't like you, they... They, they invite you out yeah. to spend time with them at a party. And the thing is, like, the message, it doesn't even sound all that sarcastic. No. Like, there is a genuine, the tone of it, there's a genuine interest in having him come over. Yeah, yeah. It's just them, it's just Jeff making fun of the robot noises. That's a little bit not cool. That's it. Yeah. And I've, I've been the slightly socially out of it guy who people go out of their way to invite to things and you feel like there's an ulterior motive there. Mm-hmm. And the motive is usually just to get you out of your shell a bit. Yeah. So I have no I, I have no belief that they were going to invite him there to, like, you know... Torment him? his face in or something, yeah. Right, yeah. 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 It's just such a... It's an overreaction that's not earned. Yeah. By the, by the film. But then, you know, they don't play up anything enough for any of what happens to be justified throughout the entirety. Right. This is just another example. Yeah. Just another sequence of events. So as Alex comforts JP, JP sees Demonic on the TV and begins admiring its design. He, he thinks the collision detection is excellent. Yeah. He offers to take the game and test it for feedback, which Alex gratefully accepts, asking that JP not tell anyone at work because it's a secret. Yep. And Everyone knows where this is going at this point. Even without the foreshadowing of earlier, the protagonist should have seen what was going on. Never give anyone, even if you trust them a bit, let alone if you don't know them at all, don't give anyone your original work and tell them, I've not told anyone about this. Dumbest part of the film. Yeah, and I think Alex probably does not dislike JP. I think he thinks he's weird, but that's okay. Because he's a 35-year-old game tester living with his parents who has had no career development. That's pretty weird, too. True. But even then, you don't know him. No, 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 certainly. You you, you occupy the same workplace. You don't know him. I ain't showing no one my game that I've been working on. It's about a demon that trashes a meth lab. At Dante's, there's now a Taekwondo instructor there hired to teach the new guard monkey. This is where the film, like, really just sort of, like, the pace... It just flies now. Well, that's it. This whole third act is where all of the plot is. Yeah. They are cramming so much into this final third of the film. And it's oh, well, it's not even the third. It's like 15 minutes out of the 90-minute film. That's true, yeah. Just the last stretch. This is the first time we, we get stakes to the plot. Or the first time we get a plot. Yeah. Because until then, it really is just things that have happened. It's just establishment. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's wild. At Dante's, uh, the Taekwondo instructor, he's there to hire a guard monkey that's been purchased to replace the lion. And uh, the monkey beats up the instructor, followed by Dante. At least we get to see the monkey. Mm -hmm. That's something. Uh, At work, there's an all-hands meeting where uh, Mr. Cheezle is showing off JP's new game, which... (laughs) Shocker, 
turns out to be demonic. Oh, no. And when Alex confronts him, JP denies it. And as, and again, I just... As Alex does not have another copy of his game, why? Yeah. We know why, so that the plot can happen. Right. Oh, sorry. My bad. Yeah. It's just, it's so unbelievable. You wouldn't have a backup or an earlier version. You know you have, oh, no, they don't know you have to compile this shit before it runs on something. They don't know that. They just assume that you're working on it and you make changes and then, yeah. Anyway, he's not believed, so he storms out. Going to Dante's to get supremely fucked up. Samantha goes to Lily's house looking for him and finds out that Lily is totally familiar with Demonic and has been playing it. So they go to Brainasium to sort things out, and on arrival, Jeff calls Dante's to get Alex to return to work. They have the monkey drive him and Dante to Brainasium. That's a gag. Uh, Mr. Cheezel calls Demonic, quote, very Miyamoto. Yeah, and it's not. No. Nothing about the game Demonic is Miyamoto in its design, presentation, themes, anything. And I can't help but feel that that's intentional, that this out-of-touch, semi-hippie guy, you know, is really just an executive and doesn't truly know anything about games, would say that. I don't think the film thought that far ahead. Right, that's the thing. I don't think the film's operating on that level. I don't believe the writers have that perspective. Mm -mm. Yeah. It's the only game designer name they know. Mm, 2006, that's not crazy. Nah. uh, Cliffy B wasn't a thing yet. Fucking hell, Cliffy B wasn't a thing yet. Uh, you might have known John Romero if you were into shit. Yeah, John Romero. That would have been a more apt comparison. Absolutely. It's it's wild to think how the the superstar developer personality has evolved in just like a decade's time. Yeah. That's crazy. And even then, the game industry still tries to push them out because they don't want you to know that people make their games. No. Brands make their games. Well, we're all brands now. That is true. So Samantha brings Lily in, intending to have her play the game against JP to prove that it's Alex's work. And ultimately, Lily demonstrates a finishing move that JP isn't familiar with uh, and wins the game, thereby revealing that he couldn't have made it. JP is disgraced and Alex is apologized to by Cheezel uh, through description of another one of his stupid fucking dreams. Cut six months later. The gang is hanging out at Dante, celebrating the, the release of Demonic. And Dante smokes a strain that's called Brown Bomber that makes you shit your pants and gives Alex an elephant as a gift. That's the end of the movie. Grandma's boy! That, that hot tune kicks up. Yes then, yes, then we get the plot such as it is told to us again in a rap song. Yes. Which is just a very happy Madison way of ending things. It really is. It, it just brings it all together. Full circle. Two hours. Mm-hmm. It's been a while since we've done one that leaves me exhausted. Yeah. I, this, is, this is not a bad movie, is the problem. It's a failure of a movie in that it doesn't, it doesn't do the things it needs to do to be funny. And the opportunity's there. The premise is interesting to on on a few levels and you could certainly play with it uh as we have throughout the course of the this episode that we've recorded yeah uh there's potential in the concept the execution is just so bland so uh non-transgressive for what professes to be a transgressive comedy yeah that uh 
you know, you could watch it and be unoffended. Yeah. Which is exactly what I want when I go watch a movie, is to not have an emotional reaction to it at all. Yep. And that really was me throughout. Like, I was coming up with better ideas in my head. I felt shortchanged a few times with, you know, jokes that were nowhere near at the, the, the gas level they needed to be. Mm-hmm. But for the most of, it, most of it, I was just sat there thinking, oh, yeah, I am watching events unfold. Yep. And, I mean, I'd watch it over Blubberella. Yes. <laughs> I would watch most things over Blubberella. So that's Grandma's Boy. Um, it's fine. It's there. I think th- yeah, it's there. Yeah. You, you can watch it. <laughs> you can. You'd be wasting your time. Yeah, for about uh, 85 minutes, 90 if you want to hear the rap song at the end. And you will. Yeah. Uh, that's Grandma's Boy. What are we doing next time, Jim? Uh, Encino Man. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't, we didn't think about that, did we? Yeah, no, we didn't have any sort of conversation about what that would be. Uh, any sequels we need to knock off? Not Pokemon. I can't face one of those. Did we do all of the Dead Rising films? Because I know there's another one. Uh, no, we haven't done Endgame yet. You know what? That'll do. Let's get that out the way. Okay, that'll do. Dead Rising Endgame from 2016. Oh, dear. It won't be worse than Blubberella. No. It won't be worse than Blubberella. That's, I think, the thing that we can all count on going forward with these is I think we can confidently say, oh, God, could you imagine if we found a worse movie than Blubberella? Uh, Right? I mean, I did say earlier that whenever you wonder if something can be more of a thing, it can always be more of a thing. Can something be worse than Blubberella? I mean... uh, Theoretically, yes. I guess. But I I think, I feel like we've done the worst one we'll ever get to do. Yeah, I, I, it's hard to imagine. I refuse to believe that Dead Rising Endgame will offend the senses <laughs> like Blubberella did. I think we're safe there. Yeah. And maybe there'll be more to it than Grandma's Boy. Well, we can only hope. Yeah, we'll do that next time. That's sorted. I think we're good to wrap. Yeah. Because I've been at this computer all bloody day. Oh, you should Go do something more interesting. Go do do something else with my life. Which could be anything at this point. Yeah, watch Grandma's Boy too. Um, Right, yes. Thank you, Conrad, for coming on and talking to me about Grandma's Boy. Thank you for having me. That's very good. You can follow Conrad uh, at Conrad Zimmerman on Twitter if you so wish. Mm -hmm. Um, Is there anything else? No, I think that's going to do it. get out there? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Thank you so much for listening, for continuing to support what we do here, and we will see you next time. Goodbye. Bye.